0: It was a hot August day, and the French army was marching through the forest of Le Mans in northwest France. The Duke of Brittany was causing trouble for the king yet again, but this time Charles VI would be there personally to bring the duke into line. But this would still require some time on the road. It was hot out, and the path was dusty. The king was just thinking about how thirsty he was when a shrill scream broke the silence. My lord, you are betrayed! You are betrayed! A beggar was running up to him, yelling this warning. But what could he know? The king's guard drove the man off, and the force continued their trek to Brittany. Charles's thoughts returned to planning his punitive campaign, but those words, you are betrayed, seemed to settle in his mind. Soon enough, the French forces would reach the town of Pontvala, and Charles could rest. The past few weeks had been hard on him. He wasn't sleeping well and was plagued with fever. Sweating more and more in his velvet livery, Charles motioned to his brother, some of his officers, and a handful of guards to come ahead from the main force with him. They would make for the town now, rather than staying with the army. Now that they had reached a clearing, the sun was shining down on the party. The peace of the journey was broken with the sound of metal on metal when a page dropped the king's lance onto another page's helmet. But what would normally be dismissed as a bit of slapstick seemed to snap something in the king's mind. You are betrayed, now combined with the sound of a weapon hitting armor, and Charles drew his sword. He looked around, and didn't recognize anyone. He was surrounded by enemies. He fell on his pages, one after another, hacking at them. And what could they do? They couldn't fight back against the king. Some ran away, and some hoped that playing dead could save them. Finally, after an hour of running about, and slaying more than a few men, the king had lost his energy. The men who remained with him saw that his swings were slowing. One ran up behind him and grabbed his arms while another grabbed his sword. Charles lost consciousness as the first episode of the madness that would plague him for the rest of his life subsided. When Philip the Bold, Duke of Burgundy, finally processed all that had happened, a subtle smile crept along his face. He had been ousted from the inner circle four years ago, but now he had an opportunity to assert his power over France once more. Hello and welcome to Grand Dukes of the West, episode 14, Monkeying About. Today we're returning to the narrative and are going to look at what Philip was up to during the four years that he was out of power in France, as well as how the ship of the French state fared when Philip was not at the helm. We ended our last narrative episode with Charles assuming control over the French government in 1388. Philip had been wielding power for the last eight years and had made some enemies at court. When he dragged the king and the French army all the way to Helders through the Ardennes forest and back again, without really doing anything, it seemed that he had spent a bit too much of his political capital. So when the king dismissed Philip and his brother John of Berry, there was nothing that they could do. But the two uncles were still peers of the realm, and so they were not left out of power completely. Now, however, their advice would be sought rather than required, and they would graciously accept gifts rather than expectantly demand them. Really, the biggest casualty of the whole affair would be the finances of the Burgundian court, as in the years leading up to his dismissal, Philip received as much from the royal treasury as he did from all of his southern territories. Now he would have to rely on his own lands for funds. So now let's get acquainted with the men who took Philip and John's place at the center of the French court. We already know the king, who now truly had the final word, and there was also his brother Louis, Duke of Touraine, and later Orléans. Surrounding the brothers were a group of ministers who Foissat termed the Marmosets. Chief among the Marmosets was Olivier de Clisson, the constable of France. De Clisson has popped up a few times throughout the story so far, In fact, he was the one actually leading the French armies at Rosebeck. But it's about time that we give him a proper introduction. The de Clisson family was one of the most important noble clans in Brittany. In the first half of his life, Olivier de Clisson fought with Jean de Montfort, henceforth referred to as John of Montfort, the English-backed candidate in the War of Breton Succession. However, over the course of the war, de Clisson and Montfort began to bunt heads, and around 1370 he switched his allegiance to the French king. After his side switching, de Clisson ended up fighting alongside another Breton officer, Bertrand du Guesclin. De Clisson and du Guesclin drove Montfort out of Brittany, but only briefly. The duke soon returned with an English army backing him up. The next few years saw de Clisson fighting both in and out of Brittany. Throughout this period, he continued to grow closer with Charles V and Louis of Anjou, although he was disliked by their younger brothers, Philip the Bold and John of Berry. When Charles announced his plan to annex Brittany into the royal domain, de Clisson was the only one out of the many Breton nobles in the senior officer corps of the French army to support the plan. When Bertrand Guesclin died in 1380, Olivier de Clisson was given the nod to succeed him as constable by Charles V but the king died before any official appointment could be made. As mentioned just a minute ago, Louis of Anjou liked de Clisson, but his brothers did not. Thus, de Clisson's appointment became one of the first political battles during the Regency of Charles VI's uncles. However, due in part to Louis's greater influence at the beginning of the Regency, and in part to de Clisson's own undeniable military skills, he was confirmed as Constable of France. Olivier de Clisson spent the next eight years leading the soldiers of France. Over the past few episodes, whenever I mention the French army doing this or that, it can be assumed that de Clisson was leading the French army to do this or that. Throughout the years, de Clisson also grew close with Charles VI and his brother Louis. Quoting John Bell Henneman Jr.'s article, Who Were the Marmosets? Quote, We may speculate that these two princes, who had been orphaned in childhood, now chafed under the tutelage of their uncles and found the battle-scarred one-eyed constable a somewhat glamorous figure who kept alive the fading memory of their father's reign other marmosets included bureau de la Riviere, the chamberlain of charles v jean de montague a royal secretary and the cardinal of laon who initially urged charles to assume government unfortunately for the cardinal he didn't have much of a chance to wield his newfound influence as he was poisoned mere days after Charles began his personal rule. What a coincidence. Foissart's term marmoset seems to refer to the low birth of these counselors, but low birth is a relative term. Bureau de la Riviere and the Cardinal of Laon both came from the lower nobility, and a few of the marmosets came from a bourgeois background and were knighted by Charles V. But many others, such as de Clisson, came from powerful and influential families, even if they didn't come from the magnates of France. But when you compare even de Clisson to the likes of the Dukes of Berry, Bourbon, or Burgundy, you definitely do see a difference in status. The Marmosets were for the most part lifelong civil servants, military officers, or members of the clergy, and their time and power reflects their experience. They formed their own party at court and swore an oath to support each other, aware that at the end of the day, no matter what office they held, they were outsiders. The policies of the Marmosets also reflect their status as officers rather than magnates. To quote Robert Necht from his book The Valois Kings of France, Departing from medieval tradition, the Marmosets developed a concept of the state in which crown officials were to see themselves as public servants rather than as creatures of princes. Many of the new measures, of course, threatened vested interests, and the Marmosets made a dangerous enemy by trying to curtail the privileges of the University of Paris. They tried to regulate appointments to the Parlement and made the Royal Council responsible for choosing Bailly and Seneschaux. The Marmosets thus represented a different view of power in general, one of a res publica and in the literal sense of a public thing. This can be contrasted with the view that many of the great nobles had of power as a personal right or possession that they claimed by birth. The Marmoset platform can be generally seen as encouraging peace with England, continuing the Fabian tactics of Bertrand du Guesclin, support for the Avignon papacy, a concern for the burden that the high taxes levied during Charles V's reign placed on the populace, a drive to balance the French budget and build a reserve of money, and this last one is mostly due to the personal feelings of Olivier de Clisson, hostility towards the Duke of Brittany. The years where the Marmosets held power thus saw lower taxes and a reigning in of government spending. Of course, this mightily ticked off Philip the Bold and John of Berry, who each considered the French state to be their personal power base and piggy bank. That being said, the lower taxes were primarily due to a truce with England coming into effect, So all of a sudden, the military budget was able to be safely reduced. We also shouldn't think of the Marmosets as humble public servants. Just like the uncles, they made sure to profit from their control of the state. After surviving an assassination attempt in 1392, Olivier de Clisson wrote a will which assessed his personal assets as equal to a whole year's revenue of the Kingdom of France. Although the policy platforms of the Marmosets and the Uncles differed in many places, they were not totally at odds. In many ways, the enmity between the groups stemmed from personal disagreements, struggles for power, and of course jealousy over a reduced ability to grift. Olivia de Clisson, ever since his break with the Montfort Duke of Brittany, had become a staunch enemy of him. As Margaret of Mala was John of Montfort's cousin, she naturally became an opponent of de Clisson and pushed her husband Philip to oppose him as well. John of Berry had his own reasons to oppose the constable, and had been cultivating an alliance with the Duke of Brittany as a way of undermining him. Meanwhile, Philip's personal enmity of Bureau de la Riviere was much more petty, as it began during the reign of Charles V, when Bureau refused a fief rent from him. And all of this is also building upon a level of natural entitlement that the uncles had as royal princes. Over the next four years, Philip would see the men that he installed in the royal bureaucracy dismissed, and the value of the gifts that were granted to him from the royal treasury dropped by about 80%. John of Berry would fare even worse, with the Marmosets granting him a pittance from the treasury and even occasionally countermanding his orders within his own lands. While the rise of the Marmosets corresponded with a decline of the influence of the uncles, the Dukes of Berry, Burgundy, and Bourbon who, by the way, was the brother of Charles VI's mother. It also marked the first time that Louis, Duke of Terrain, stepped into the limelight. Louis was the younger brother of Charles VI, and is better known as the Duke of Orléans. He became the Duke of Orléans in 1392, when he exchanged Touraine for it. You might remember that Touraine was also Philip's original appanage before he exchanged it for Burgundy. There are many similarities between Philip and Louis, apart from simply being younger sons of the king who both exchanged terrain for a richer and more prestigious duchy. And I think it's interesting that both of these princes started off their careers with the same duchy. Still, in 1388, Louis was just 16 years old, and so we should not see him as the mastermind of his uncle's ouster. As mentioned previously, Burgundy, Berry, and Bourbon had spent the past 8 years running things and in that time had made a lot of enemies. Their tenure in power had seen high taxes and unpopular policies. This is not to say that they were incompetent, although some have made the claim about the Duke of Berry, but rather that their interests did not always perfectly coincide with those of the French state. We saw how Philip used the French army to defend his personal interest in Flanders in 1382 and in Brabant in 1388. In both instances, there was a good degree of pushback against him from the Royal Council. Additionally, the uncles' habit of perpetually granting themselves gifts from the French treasury put additional strain on the already stretched French finances. So in 1388, with Charles VI about to turn 20, the men who had seen the uncles at the helm for the past eight years reckoned that it was time for a change in direction, and thus Philip, John, and the Duke of Bourbon found themselves on the outs. But arguably the Marmoset's most important accomplishment must be shared with Philip. Back in 1383, negotiations between the English and French began at the town of Lollingham near Calais. The negotiations at Lollingham would drag on for years throughout military campaigns and diplomatic offensives. Philip was not always negotiating, but he did direct the policy of the diplomats at Lollingham until 1388. With the rise of the Marmosets, all of a sudden France was led by a party more anxious for peace. The Marmosets were extremely concerned with making sure that the French government didn't go bankrupt, and that the French populace weren't fleeced by taxes. And, as we all know, war is expensive. Coincidentally, in 1389, a similar change happened in England, with Richard II assuming control of the government and appointing new counselors. So in 1389, with new men leading the negotiations on both sides, a truce at Lowlingham was agreed to. However, Philip the Bold was an early and enthusiastic promoter of peace. It just so happened that he also had his own ambitions which created roadblocks in the negotiations, such as demanding the return of Calais. Much was agreed upon before the two palace revolutions, so while Philip the Bold cannot be credited with finishing this truce, he should receive some credit for negotiating it. The truce agreed to at Lollingham was not a permanent one, but a fairly limited agreement meant to last for three years. There were still major roadblocks on the path to peace and reconciliation and it was widely known that more negotiations were necessary however the agreement made in 1389 took a great deal of pressure off both the english and french crowns and brought hostilities between the two kingdoms down to their lowest point since the 1360s around the same time that the negotiations for the truce of lowlingham were finishing up a new generation was preparing to step into the spotlight in france the occasion was the knighting of the sons of Philip's late brother, Louis, the Duke of Anjou. The young men given pride of place were, of course, Louis II, Duke of Anjou and titular King of Naples, and his brother, Charles, Prince of Toronto. But also taking a prominent part in the ceremony was the King, Louis, Duke of Touraine, Peter of Navarre, the younger son of my favorite chaos agent, Charles the Bad, and John, Count of Nevers, son of Philip the Bold. All were in their early 20s or younger, and all had violent lives ahead of them. But in 1389, the future was still bright for these young flowers of chivalry. The knighting ceremony was filled with pomp and circumstance, as well as a week of celebrations, feasts, and tournaments. Although no longer in charge, Philip, as usual, had a firm command on style and elegance. Philip and his son John showed up with a retinue of over 100 courtiers, all dressed in fine green velvet. The week concluded with a ceremony dedicated to Bertrand du Guesclin, where all the young knights presented their swords to the old constable's armor. Not long after this ceremony, Louis of Touraine had another reason to celebrate, as he was getting married. The bride was Valentina Visconti, daughter of the upstart lord of Milan, Gian Galeazzo. Gian Galeazzo had seized control of Milan by overthrowing his uncle Bernabo, and then went on to fight with his neighbors to further expand Milan's territory. Both the old lord of Milan and Gian Galeazzo's targets for expansion had allies at the French court, and so even though the match was agreed to in 1387, Philip and John did their best to delay the wedding. But once his uncles were out of the way, Louis was able to send for Valentina Visconti and secure his dowry: the county of Asti in northern Italy, the county of Vertu in Champagne, and a whole lot of money. Louis's wedding to Valentina also marked the beginning of his own attempts at expansion. Shortly after the marriage, a scheme was hatched between the king and Louis for an Italian expedition. The French planned to sweep through the peninsula on a grand campaign. They would set out from Avignon and then meet up with John Galeazzo Visconti in Milan. From there, they would sweep south to Rome to kick out Pope Urban and install Clement VII, and then continue south to install the young Louis II of Anjou in Naples. Some bonuses from the campaign would include further expanding Milan and possibly raising John Galeazzo to the rank of king, ending the Western Schism, having Clement crown Charles VI as Holy Roman Emperor, and conquering some more land for Louis of Turain. The plan was incredibly ambitious and would have made France the unquestioned master of the Italian peninsula, but it would have also taken the entire force of the French army to accomplish. Despite the truce of Lollingham being in effect, the French still had to worry about England, so without a permanent peace with England in the cards at the moment, the plan had to be abandoned. But speaking of Italy, 1389 also saw the death of the Roman Pope Urban VI. The death of Urban offered a brief opportunity to end the schism before a new Roman pope, Boniface IX, was elected. France continued to pay heed to Avignon, with Louis of Touraine and the Marmosets being especially solid supporters. Philip the Bold himself was a supporter of the Avignon papacy, but as many of his subjects were steadfast supporters of Rome, he could only go so far. Philip spent some of his time out of power building his influence over the religious institutions of the Low Countries. He moved to assume authority over the bishoprics of Tournai and Cambrai, which together covered most of Flanders, and when the ecclesiastical offices opened up, he would appoint candidates who paid heed to Avignon, sometimes with more success and sometimes with less. In general, Philip maintained an official policy of adherence to Avignon in his territories, but looked the other way when his Flemish subjects followed Rome. After the death of Urban, a more concerted effort was taken to convince the towns and peoples of Flanders to support Clement. By 1393, almost all of Flanders, excepting Ghent, had at least nominally accepted the authority of Clementine bishops. Philip did not use force to compel obedience to Avignon, but the process was not always smooth, and religious unrest did bubble up during this time. Religion was not Philip's only concern in Flanders, however. Between 1386 and 1392, Philip was in negotiations with the Hanseatic League to return their business to Bruges. During the late 1300s, the League of North German Trading Cities was at its height and had a considerable amount of control over shipping in the North and Baltic seas. Bruges marked the point where their goods would enter the Western European and Mediterranean markets. The volume of trade that the Hansa controlled meant that a considerable portion of Bruges' trade ended up going through Hanseatic merchants. Throughout the Ghent War, the cities of the Hanseatic League supported Ghent, and so Louis of Mala considered them fair game to go after. The Hansa responded by beginning talks with the Count of Holland to move their staple from Bruges to Dordrecht. This move would have been disastrous for Bruges' economy, And so when these plans became more concrete, Philip, now the Count of Flanders, and the four members of Flanders sent representatives to meet with the Hansa cities. As Bruges was, simply put, a better port and a market than Dordrecht, the Hansa cities were willing to consider staying. But this first round of negotiations went extremely poorly. Not only did the Hanseatic League move their staple from Bruges to Dordrecht, they also imposed an embargo on Flanders. In 1388, Philip tried to meet with the Hansards again to restart negotiations. This round of negotiations went better, but was by no means smooth. They went on for four years, nearly breaking down several times. In the end, the Flemish agreed to formally apologize to the Hansards and pay reparations for the damages caused by Louis' attacks on their shipping, and the Hanseatic League agreed to move back to Bruges. Philip gained the benefit of increased commerce at Bruges and a potential stick to use against the Flemish if a revolt broke out, as he was now able to threaten the four members with another attack on Hansa shipping. The truce of Lollingham also represented a win for Flemish commerce, as now their wool supply would no longer be threatened by the Hundred Years' War. Philip's time as Count had thus far seen him supporting Flemish commerce and manufacturing, and so even though the Flemings may have been less than enthused about his religious policies, His economic and diplomatic policies served them well. Philip was not limiting his low country diplomacy to trade. He was also taking steps to increase his influence over Brabant. One of these steps was a monetary offensive that Philip undertook in the late 1380s. Here, Philip and Joan, the Duchess of Brabant, agreed to mint a common currency through the mint in Mechelen, which, if you'll recall, was a Brabantine town held by Philip. Philip then continued to mint similar coins in Ghent, which were debased, as in, they had a lower precious metal percentage than the Mechelen coins. As Gresham's law states, bad money drives out good money, or the debased coins will crowd the better coins out of the market. Eventually, this caused Brabant to begin to run out of precious metals to mint coins, and added to Joan's already serious money problems. Eventually, minting her own coinage became so costly for Joan that she ceded all of her minting rights for Brabant to Philip after which he stopped minting debased coins and began to drive them out of circulation. For a few years, the money market in Bruges was a bit of a mess, but Flanders' economy was much stronger than Brabant's was, and thus could better absorb the hit. Once Philip gained control of Brabant's money supply, he and his favorite banker, Dino Rapondi, set to writing the market again. Foreign coins were prevented from leaving the county. Additionally, money changers and merchants were encouraged to deposit their foreign coins with the duke so that he could melt them down to create non-debased Flemish coins. Monetary policy was not Philip's only tool to maintain control of Brabant. After the campaign in Gelders in 1388, Philip requested a huge sum of money from Joan for his services to her. Joan was already in debt to a number of her lords, and Philip offered to forgive her debt to him and to pay her debt to her vassals in exchange for her Duchy of Limburg and the lands of Overmas. So between 1387 and 1390, Philip bit by bit gained control of Limburg and Overmas. Furthermore, in 1390, Joan secretly passed Brabant over to Philip and Margaret. However, she did remain in control of the Duchy for the rest of her life according to the agreement. Joan would outlive Philip by a few years, so he never gained control of Brabant, but his second son, Antoine, would. Back in Flanders, Philip was also building up the defensive infrastructure of the county. After the Ghent War, many towns had been ravaged by soldiers, castles had been stormed and destroyed, and there was general devastation of the countryside. The first decade or so of Philip's rule as count thus saw a county wide program of wall and castle building similar to what he had overseen in the Duchy of Burgundy. Of course, much of this was also to strengthen the comital position in case of another urban revolt, but the defenses also served to protect the coasts from piracy or English raids and the interior from bandits or free companies. Before we continue on to the madness of Charles VI and Philip's return to controlling France, I want to briefly mention his dealings with the nobility of the County of Burgundy. Now, I've mentioned a few times that the nobility of the county were used to having little oversight and were hard to control. Philip, meanwhile, loved being in control, and thus a confrontation was set to take place. In 1390, the Prince of Orange, yes, the Prince of Orange, Jean de Chalon, led some nobles of the county to assassinate a ducal officer. Philip then summoned de Chalon to answer for his crimes, but the Prince of Orange did not show. Philip responded to this insult by having his governor seize some of de Chalon’s castles and banished him. The next year, Jean de Chalon was captured by ducal forces, and after a few years in Philip's prisons, was pardoned in exchange for allowing much of his lands to be annexed into the ducal domain and building a chapel dedicated to the murdered ducal officer. I mostly brought up this story for two reasons. First, Jean de Chalon was a leading noble in the Franche-Comté, and by cowing him, Philip was able to significantly increase his authority there, which in turn sped up the process of bringing the two Burgundies into political alignment. And second, well, because Jean de Chalons was the Prince of Orange, and while I don't plan on covering the period of Lowcountry history where the Princes of Orange play a huge role, I still think it's interesting to note that Jean's conflict with Philip might mark the first time that a Prince of Orange came into conflict with someone aspiring to rule the Low Countries. After ruling his inherited lands for almost a decade, Philip was in a strong position, but he still technically only ruled most of his territories by right of his wife. So to ensure that Philip's burgeoning statelet didn't disintegrate upon an untimely death of Margaret of Mala, the Duchess signed a document in 1391 making Philip her official heir for all the lands that she held. In the end, Margaret would outlive her husband, but this document does show that the couple made a concerted effort to strengthen the unity of their territories. So with that out of the way, let's now return to the center and look at the deteriorating relations between the Duke of Brittany and the royal government. During the War of Breton Succession, the Montfort family was backed by England, while their opponents were backed by France. So when John of Montfort became Duke in 1365, he was in a bit of a tricky position. John officially accepted Charles V as his suzerain, but also allowed the English to maintain garrisons in Brittany. This strategic threat was not acceptable to Charles V, And so he encouraged local rebellion, and later sent Olivier de Clisson and Bertrand du Guesclin to Brittany. But, like I said earlier, despite being forced out of Brittany, John came back with an English army. Charles V then tried to annex Brittany into the royal domain, but in the end that proved to be a boondoggle. In 1381, with Charles VI as the new king, John of Montfort took the opportunity to make peace. Between 1380 and 1388, the French court had a mixed opinion of the Duke of Brittany. As I mentioned earlier, Olivier de Clisson absolutely hated him, and so the circle around him, which eventually became the Marmosets, opposed him as well. On the other hand, the uncles cultivated an alliance with the Duke of Brittany. This alliance was actually spurred on by all parties' hatred of de Clisson. The constable represented a significant threat to Montfort's control of his duchy, even presenting himself as a possible alternate for the ducal throne. John of Berry had a falling out with de Clisson over their rivalry for influence in the county of Poitou. Philip had a family connection with Montfort through his wife and saw the constable as his chief rival for influence over the king. So in 1384, Berry, Burgundy, and Brittany formed a coalition to stand against the constable and the Marmosets. Tensions between the parties increased a few years later when an important Breton noble died and her lands were set to transfer to an enemy of Montfort and an ally of de Clisson. Olivier de Clisson was in Brittany in 1387 to try and facilitate the land transfer, and also to undermine Montfort's position. The Duke of Brittany, in an act of desperation, arrested the constable, but here he went too far. De Clisson had many friends in the French army, and of course was looked up to by the young king. The king was outraged by his constable's arrest and threatened the duke with another invasion of his duchy. Things almost came to a head, but John of Montfort relented and released de Clisson and renounced a possible alliance with the English, while Philip managed to arrange a reconciliation between Montfort and the king and to divert the king's martial passions towards Helder's, After the rise of the Marmosets in the aftermath of the Helder's campaign, John of Montfort now did not have the uncles urging friendship with him at the highest levels of power. In 1392, after an attempt on Olivia de Clisson's life, Montfort was blamed, despite no proof of his involvement existing, although the assassin, Pierre de Creon, did flee France via Brittany. Foissart ties this back to Louis of Touraine. Apparently, the young duke had attempted to start an affair with a Parisian woman, but his wife found out about it from de Creon, and thus conspired to end the affair before it started. When Louis found out about this, he was furious and convinced his brother to dismiss Pierre de Creon from royal service. De Creon was never given a reason for his dismissal, and ended up joining the court of the Duke of Brittany, who, Fossard claims, convinced Pierre de Creon that his dismissal was masterminded by Olivier de Clisson. Regardless of whether or not Montfort was the driving force behind the assassination attempt, the king and his ministers were convinced, and decided to invade Brittany to depose John of Montfort. This invasion was widely seen as a private affair between de Clisson and Montfort, driving state policy. And to fund the campaign, de Clisson even gave the royal government a loan from his personal wealth. As Jonathan Sumption wrote Contemporaries were shocked. There was no precedent for embarking on a major campaign by the fiat of the king and his ministers alone. It looked like a partisan decision, a conscious rejection of the show of deliberation and consensus which had always lent legitimacy to such decisions in the past. The Duke of Berry kept his own counsels, but among his intimates he made no secret of his disapproval. The Duke of Burgundy, who had not been consulted, was furious. He wrote to Bureau de la Riviere and other prominent ministers to protest. But with the king's mind made up, there was nothing that the uncles could do. Many other high nobles voiced their opposition to the campaign, and even pointed out that Pierre de Creon was no longer in Brittany, and still, the king decided on teaching Brittany a lesson. Not even his doctors, who were concerned for his health as he was stressed and not sleeping well, could talk him out of the expedition. Charles was backed up by the Marmosets and by his brother Louis, now Duke of Orléans. As peers of the realm, the Dukes of Berry, Bourbon, and Burgundy accompanied the king on this expedition to Brittany, but they were obviously not happy about it. The royal force, however, never came into contact with Montfort. On his way into Brittany, Charles VI was struck by a bout of insanity. He attacked his retainers and then passed out. The Duke of Burgundy immediately saw his opportunity and took charge. The Breton campaign was called off, and Philip sent peace overtures to John of Montfort. He then provoked a quarrel with Olivier de Clisson and worked to chip away his power and political support. After a few days, the king was well enough to travel again, and the army began marching back to Paris. Once back in the capital, Philip arranged for a great council of the high nobility of France to meet and decide on how to proceed. In this meeting, Philip reassumed his role as de facto head of state. Technically, Louis of Orléans, as the closest relative to the king, was the natural choice, but he was generally seen as inexperienced and irresponsible. Philip, on the other hand, was widely respected amongst the nobility and had spent his career cultivating supporters. So for now, we'll leave off with Philip back in power after four years in the proverbial wilderness. Next time, we'll take another break from the narrative to review the context for John of Montfort's and Olivia de Clisson's feud in a supplemental episode covering the War of Breton Succession. And after that, we'll return to the narrative once again to see Philip once more in charge of the French court. Thanks to everyone who listened, and an extra thanks to my patrons. I'm happy to report that we have two new patrons, Anthony, Comte de Chateauneuf-en-Auxois, and Preston, Chevalier de Duche, And thanks to my existing patrons, Christine, Comte de Chenonceau, and Elliot, here von Gravenstein. If you want to join them, you can go to patreon.com slash valoisburgundy. If you like the show, I would really appreciate it if you would rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or your platform of choice and tell your friends about it. If you want to keep up with the show, you can follow me at twitter.com slash valoisburgundy or find Grand Dukes of the West on Facebook, or on Mastodon at mas.to slash at Valois Burgundy. You can also email me at West at gmail.com and check out the podcast website for maps, images, and more at granddukesofthewest.com.